So I mentioned this a minute ago. We, we live in a, a culture that is in constant worry, constant turmoil. You remember that passage where Mary is at the feet of Jesus and Martha is troubled? Uh, the Greek word there is tabazo, and it means to be troubled. Think of turbulence. That's where you get the word turbulence in English, where airplanes up and it's like just shaking with the turbulence. Well, there are seasons of life we're going to go through and we're going to have turbulence, but it does become a problem when that season never gives way to anything else. And we're just in constant turbulence mode. And that's what it feels like our world is in. Uh, it almost feels like the stress and anxiety are everywhere in every transaction and every relationship. It's not just out there in the world, but even among God's people. We're all struggling with anxiety today. I read the other day uh, an article that tracked the rise of worry and anxiety. Uh, and it was the American Psychological Association. They put out a diagnostic and statistical manual every, you know, every once in a while. In 1980, they had 15 pages devoted to anxiety orders. Just anxiety orders. Anything you could think of, 15 pages. By 1987, seven years later, the 15 turned into 18 pages. By 1994, the entries grew to 51 pages of just naming anxieties. And by 2013, you had 99 pages that was tracked. Now, you could say they're just discovering more anxieties, but I would say when you look at other studies, anxiety is definitely on the rise. It's on the rise in most people's hearts. And whatever you want to call it, you want to call it worry, you want to call it stress, you want to call it anxiety, well, I'll wordsmith with you if you want, but whatever it is, our modern culture is racked with it. And I don't think we have to look too far. Many of us, me included, we can look into our own hearts and see where we struggle with worry and anxiety. Uh, the old commentator Warren Wearsby uh, from yesteryear, he wrote this, and I think he picked it up somewhere else. He said, we're constantly crucified between two thieves, the regrets of yesterday and the worries of tomorrow. That's pretty good. Just as Jesus is crucified between two thieves, our joy is constantly crucified between two thieves. We have worries from yesterday, the regrets, and we have worries about tomorrow. Think about those worries from yesterday, just by way of introduction, the regret. I could have been a better father. I could have been a better daughter. Why did I make that commitment 25 or 30 or 50 years ago about my trajectory, my life on this trajectory? Why didn't I make another commitment why didn't I do better in school? Why didn't I have a better social group? Why didn't I avoid getting in the car that night than the accident that changed the trajectory of my life? Why didn't I back away from that altercation instead of pressing in? And, you know, there's all these regrets that we have. We think about Proverbs 5.11. You know what it says? Proverbs 5.11 says, at the end of your life, you groan. That means you groan from regrets. It doesn't just mean you groan from old age. It's very normal to have those kinds of regrets. And the wonderful thing about being a Christian, about following Christ, the gospel teaches us not to let that thief crucify us, but we crucify that thief through the power of the gospel, that regret. That's why Paul said, of course, in Philippians, I'm going to forget those things which came before, and I'm going to press on to the high calling I have in Christ Jesus, that I don't have to live in regret because of Christ and his work. And we are also crucified on the other side by the worries of tomorrow. That's the other thief. Remember, Jesus is crucified between two, not just one. These are the what ifs. What if I get sick? What if I get fired? What if I can't take care of myself? What if my grandkids can't take care of themselves? 
What if people don't accept me? What if they reject me? What if the opportunities don't open up? Just as Jesus is crucified between two thieves, our joy is constantly crucified between the regrets of yesterday and the what-ifs of tomorrow. And that's where our passage comes in. This is good news. Verse 22. I got the best news you could possibly hear. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, do not be anxious about your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to put on, what you're going to wear. For the body is more than the life. Now I could spend a lot of time qualifying this statement that Jesus makes. And I don't want to do that because we're going to detract from the passage. I could say this. I could say, you could say, well, some people are just more prone to worry. To which I would say, sure, I don't disagree with some. All people are prone to different things. I have no doubt in my mind the biological makeup of some people is more prone to worry than others. That is completely consistent with the biblical view of the fall. You know, we all have different things we struggle with. I get that. Um, you could also say, well, isn't some of this environmental? You know, people have traumas when they're younger. They go through life. And, and I would say, right, that, that definitely plays part of it. And so all these things can come into play. There's no doubt about that. Nevertheless, let's not let the bite of the passage miss us. Jesus looks at his disciples, looks at us and says, take no thought about tomorrow. By the way, on the environmental question, and this is just, just food for thought, kind of a pastoral thought. One of the things that I ask of myself And when I talk to people who are full of anxiety, I also ask them, tell me about your environment. The truth is, sometimes we just work against our design. I remember I had a conversation with a a young man some, oh, many years ago. He's racked with worry and anxiety and sleeplessness. And, you know, I'm like, well, tell me what you do. You know, and he says, well, I wake up at this time and I take a nap. And then, you know, like 11 o'clock at night, I take a Mountain Dew and drink that and I have a bag of Doritos. And I'm like, Of course, you're sleep deprived. You're filling yourself with caffeine at 11 o'clock at night. Sometimes there are just little environmental things. We're working against our design. That certainly will compound the anxiety. Am I sleep deprived? Am I allowing myself to constantly be bombarded by bad news? You know what the pastoral prescription is for somebody that can't stop listening to bad news? You got to put a filter or something on your internet. You've got to stop reading constant bad. You are one person. You can't allow your heart and your mind to be bombarded with bad news 24-7. Of course you're full of anxiety. You think the world's about to spin out of control. It's the only thing you hear. Are we striving to be productive people? Listen, I know what it's like to be unproductive, just like seasons of your life. There are times you go through and you're not really doing what God has called you to do. Or maybe you're on one of those extended vacations and by the end of two weeks, you're just feeling kind of lethargic. Imagine doing that for six months. Sometimes There are environmental things that we can help. So we could talk about all of this. But again, I don't want to take the, the wonderful encouragement Jesus gives us here. Take no thought of what you will eat or what you will drink. And so Jesus is telling us there, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have the grip of worry on our hearts weaken. We can weaken. Here's what I want you to picture, and then we're going to go into what Jesus tells the disciples. Have you ever, uh, if you have little kids or grandkids, you've done this, or maybe you have nieces or nephews. You ever, you ever wrestle with a little kid, you know, I'm not, playing around, right? Four years old, and you grab their ankle or their foot like this, and they're trying to get away, and they're giggling and laughing, and you're pulling them back on the rug or something like that. There is no way a four-year-old is going to grab a 40-year-old man's arm and pull that hand off if he doesn't want it to happen. 
So what does the four-year-old do? The four-year-old is smarter than we think. The four-year-old, with that little giggle and that little laugh, turns around and grabs one finger at a time, right? And starts to bend it back like this until they get them all back. And that's what Jesus does in this passage. One line after another. Jesus doesn't just take no thought. He's not telling you, just kind of shake this thing off completely. But he pulls back five fingers here. I'll actually give you six. He pulls back one at a time, one idea after another, to weaken the grip of anxiety on the heart. Now I know that if you're holding on to that child, as soon as they pull two fingers back and go for the third, you can come back and grab back. I get that. That's what worry does to us. Nevertheless, we can continue to pull those fingers back and weaken the grip of anxiety and worry on our hearts. And I want to show you that's what Jesus does here. He's going to give you five or six ideas to pull these fingers back if you struggle with worry, like all of us do. And the first one is this. I just want us to be encouraged. You are not alone. You're not alone because pastor says you're not alone and I have some anecdotal evidence You're not alone because Jesus here is telling you you're not alone. Look at the verse 22. And he said to his what? Remember? Disciples. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Now I wouldn't expect this. I would think it would say, and Jesus told those unbelievers, don't worry about what you eat or what you drink. Or how about this? Jesus told those lukewarm followers what you will eat or what you will drink. It almost blows my mind, to use an expression, that Jesus looks at Nathaniel and Peter and Thomas. Remember those women that follow him? The close disciples. He says, take no thought. What does that tell us? That tells us that even the closest followers of Jesus, even the most spiritually mature, struggle with worry and struggle with anxiety. There's a narrative that goes through the church. It sounds like this. Once I reach spiritual maturity, I will not be harassed by by worry. I mean, I'm harassed by it now, but spiritually mature people don't get harassed by worry. They don't struggle with worry. But that's not true because Jesus' own disciples are struggling with worry here. Jesus is speaking to the crowd as if every single person under the sound of his voice, including Peter, James, and John, struggle with worry. Now, let me just unpack this, if you don't mind, 30 seconds more. We're talking about the people that saw Jesus turn water into wine. The people that heard Jesus speak the Sermon on the Mount. The people that watched Jesus heal the withered hand. These are people up close and personal that are so close to Jesus they can put a hand on him. One of them at the Last Supper is going to lean back on Jesus' breast. These are the people that Jesus walked up to and said, on the outside, I'm speaking in riddles and parables, but to you on the inside, I'm going to give you the secret to the kingdom. Those disciples, you could not become more spiritually mature, have a greater experience with God than those disciples. Jesus looks at them and assumes their little hearts are racked with worry. You are not alone. I am not alone. If nothing else, remember the passage in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. That phrase, common to man, that means all of humanity. That's kind of a Greek euphemism for that. Sometimes we feel so alone in this struggle, don't we? But we learn here that we're not alone. Now, I just want to do this real quick. Why do we feel alone when we worry? 
And I think there's several reasons, and we can identify them this way. And I just want to tease this out a little bit. First of all, I want you to notice that all of us have different stress points. We all have different worries. See what Jesus said. He said he throws out a number of examples. Take no thought what you should eat or what you should drink or what you should wear. It's almost like Jesus is just throwing ideas out and seeing who they stick on, you know? These are, I mean, it gives more than, hey, take no thought what you should eat. And one guy goes, oh, I feel like the Lord's talking to me on that one. Or what you should wear. And there's a girl over here that's been worrying about what she's going to put on. She's not worried about what she's going to eat. She's worried about what she's going to wear. In other words, we all have different stress points. Mine is not yours and yours is not mine. But that doesn't mean that we're both not harassed by the same worry and the same thief of our joy. You know, after being married for uh, a couple decades, I've just come to accept that my wife and I have different points of worry. There are things Tina worries about, you know, and I'm like, I don't know how people worry about that, you know? And there are things I worry about, and she's like, that's so inconsequential, you know? And by the way, it's good to be married to somebody that has different worries than you, because when they intersect, that's usually when we're in trouble and we spiral. But what that's taught me is what's in this passage Take no thought what you should eat or what you should drink or what you should wear. Take no thought where you're going to go to college or what career you're going to end up in. Take no thought if you're going to wake up tomorrow and your leg is going to hurt or you're going to have a headache. Take no thought about what your neighbor is going to say to you and sticks his head out the window and you start your car in the morning. We all have different worries and those don't all hit us the same way. We're different people in different situations. We can also say that, oh, by the way, uh, if you read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about married and single people. And we don't have time to look at this. Did you, you know what he does in 1 Corinthians 7? He shows how each married and single have a different set of worries. Single people worry about these things. Married people worry about these things. We all have different worries. Number two, just a thought. Some seasons of life just seem more stressful than others. Uh, there are times when you read the Psalms, which, where David just puts his, his worry on display. Th- there are times you read it, and, and he just, everything's great. Like, it, he seem, just seems stress-free for some reason. And then there's verses like Psalm 94, 19. Listen, when anxiety was great within me, you brought me joy. You hear the word when? When. In other words, there are times anxiety was great in David. Guess what? There's other times anxiety isn't so great in David. Different seasons of David's life brought different anxieties. And the same is true with us. Uh, There are times when you go through something and for months you just, boy, you're having trouble. Your throat is constricting. Your heart is racing. You can't control your thoughts. It's really tough. And there are other times it's a little bit easier to control that anxiety. The last thing I just want to say is this on this one point. Why, Why does it seem like you're alone? Sometimes certain stresses are hidden when some are more visible. D- David said this, why, why, wh- when, when I was troubled within me, you hear the language? Within me. This is a Psalm 94 where David has trouble on the inside, but guess who didn't know that? Everybody around David. Then there's other times he can't control himself, you know, and other people are seeing it. Just because you don't see somebody else's anxieties doesn't mean they're not there. I've met people, for example, that are afraid of crowds. They don't, they're just terrified when they get in the middle of a crowd. Those people are trying to get as far away from the crowd or a group of people as they possibly can. 
I've had other friends, they struggle with people-pleasing. They're always worried about what people think about them. You know what those people do? They're always trying to push into the crowd. One of those appears to be way more dysfunctional than the other because they're not, they get nervous when they're around crowds. The other one seems to feel, both of them are struggling with worry though. It just manifests itself in a different way. I remember when I was, uh, had a friend in New York City who was afraid to ride the bus. Just terrible anxiety. And she'd have to walk everywhere, you know? And uh, that's going to stick out, <laughs> you know, especially when you're always exhausted. Some anxieties just hit us differently. Again, back to this. No temptation has taken you. Be encouraged, friends. Be encouraged. And uh, let it sink in that this includes Jesus, tempted at all points, yet without sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is sweating as like drops of blood, I take that to mean he is pushing back at worry, really seeking the Lord. All right, number one, you are not alone. Lock that in. Be encouraged. You're not alone. Number two, our greatest needs are spiritual. They're not material. Now, I know when I say this, we are really pushing the boundaries of what people believe in our world today because our world would flip this. Our world says your greatest needs are material, and then if you have time, maybe you can deal with those spiritual needs also. Jesus inverts that. And he says, your greatest need is spiritual. And then if you have time, worry about the material. But oh, I'll take care of that anyway. Just seek my kingdom first. That's what verse 23 is. For the life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Our world believes that money and health can fix almost any problem. If you have money and you're healthy, then you're going to be happy and fulfilled. That's what the secular age believes. Good policies, material, make more money. Jesus is telling us it's not that the material things are unimportant. They are important. Notice what Jesus says. When he says life is more than food, that doesn't mean food is unimportant. That doesn't mean, he says, doesn't say go starve yourself. You've got to work and you've got to shop and you want to take care of people. But life is more than that. Our greatest needs are spiritual they're not material. There's a great passage in Mark 2. You remember this where there's a, a, a guy that's a paraplegic. He can't walk. And he's on what's called a pallet. Kind of one of those old beds they carry around in. He's got four crazy friends. Everybody needs four crazy friends. You know, people, people that will pray for you and really seek God's best for you. I hope you have four crazy friends. And the, the house that Jesus is in is so crowded that they can't get that pallet through the front door. So they pull those old tiles off the roof and they lower that man down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man and says this, says, your sins are forgiven. And I imagine that when people heard that, they're like, wow, that's really helpful. Your sins are forgiven, <laughs> you know. But that's because we live in a materialistic world. We live in a world that values, for example, healing even more than forgiveness of sins. When Jesus says, so that you know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say, arise, get up and walk, and the man is healed. That is Jesus' way of saying, not only am I the one that can forgive sins, he is also saying the forgiveness of sins in this young man's life is way more important than even his ability to get up and walk. It's not that God is unconcerned about the man's health. Clearly, Jesus is concerned about his health. But even more important, he's concerned about his relationship with God. Remember when Jesus says to the disciples, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, get this language, and greater works will you do because I go to my Father. 
I don't doubt for a minute the greater works the apostles are doing are some miracles, but you know what the greatest work is? They're going to spread the gospel. Read the book of Acts. The spiritual is vitally important. I read a story recently about a man that was writing, I think it was over here in New York, just on uh, 684, and he had a stroke. And, uh, you know, and, and when you're driving, it's, it's actually not that common because you can pick the signs up apparently, but this man had a stroke and he hit the guardrail and he had some minor injuries as a result. As I recall, somebody in a car next to him saw that he had a stroke and pulled into his car and pulled him into the guardrail to keep him from crashing into something. It's actually kind of a heroic way to help. And as they pulled him out of the car, of course, he's got cuts and bruises and maybe has a broken finger or something like that. There is not a medic in the world that's going to reset that finger immediately rather than deal with the stroke. The stroke is a big deal. The stroke might take the man's life. We'll put a Band-Aid on the guy's knee when we get into the hospital. But right now, we've got to check these vitals. We've got to make sure the man is still with us. You know, the most there's, it's not, it's not that a scrape on a knee is unimportant. It's not even that a broken leg is unimportant. But man, a stroke is a big deal. Food is important. Clothes are important. But they're nowhere near as important as the power of God's ability to forgive our sins. Jesus lived his life this way. The disciples said to Jesus, let's go get some food. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of the Father. Or how about in the temptation? The devil tempts Jesus with food. Ah, man shall not live by bread alone. Spiritual is more important. Number three, let's peel another finger back. In desperate moments, God cares for us. God cares for, in the most desperate moment, God cares for us. I got three illustrations, Jesus tells us here. The ravens, the lilies, and the grass. And in each of these, Jesus argues from lesser to greater, right? He says, consider the ravens. The ravens are despised birds. We kind of like ravens. You know, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a poem. And, you know, in the ancient world, the raven is like a... Ravens and sparrows are two despised birds in the ancient world. And and, and, um, they're, they're considered unclean. They're a nuisance. And yet God takes care of them. And then he says, look at the lilies, these red and purple flowers in the field. Now these are pretty. They're on these 10-inch stalks, you know. And they they don't even store in barns. They don't work, but God takes care of them. And then he goes on to say, look at the grass, verse 28. The grass is thrown into the oven. This this is a domestic oven that you would have in a house. And so they'd have these ovens like in in the middle of the house and sometimes outside. And what you could do with the dead grass instead of wood is you can get it hot really fast. So they'd bundle that dead grass up, kind of tie it together with with other grass. They'd throw it into the oven in a great fire starter. If you keep throwing it in, it really warms that oven up quick. In other words, this grass is worth nothing. You just burn it in the fire. But we're told here that God takes care of, care, of, care of even the grass that's thrown into the oven. God takes care of all these things. Isn't it true that he will take care of us and our most desperate needs? God is willing to provide for us. That's what each of the illustrations tell us. By the way, the passage isn't telling us that God can provide for us. That's self-evident to the disciples. They're good theologians. They understand the sovereignty of God. They know their Old Testament very. 
the question that's going through the disciples' mind is not can God, but will God? I don't know if you ever had somebody come up to you when you're hurting and they're like, don't worry, God is able to take care of you. Sometimes that helps, but sometimes it doesn't help me because that's not the question I'm wrestling with. I'm not wrestling with can God, I'm wrestling with will God. And we need the love of God to come into our lives. There's a great verse in Romans, you know this one? Where it says, God delivered up his son for us, will he not also give us freely all things? If he gave you his son, he's going to give you the food and the clothes. He's, you know, I, mean, I mean, picture, I want you to picture a mom and a dad that save up for college, right? Save up whatever it is, 401ks, savings, whatever it is. And they do this for years, years and years, right? And then this child's going to go take an SAT test. They've been talking about this kid going to Duke University or wherever it is for years. And the kid's about to go into the SAT test, and the kid goes, oh, I left my pencil at home. Mom, can I borrow yours? And the mom looks at the kid and says, no way, that's my pencil. Nobody takes my pencil. That's ridiculous. Any parent that's put this much into their child's education is certainly going to at least give them the pencil. It's ridiculous. That's what Romans 8 is saying. Any God that would sacrifice his son for you, certainly he's going to take care of your lesser needs that don't cost him his son in that regard. Stressing out when God will take care of us. In Matthew's version, he says, our heavenly father's knows even before we ask. I once heard a story about a man that owned a dog and that little dog loved bones. And the dog, owner comes home and gives the dog a bone and the dog goes and plants it into the backyard and buries it. And he just sits at the window watching where that bone is buried. Just can't take his eyes off it. Every time a little bird lands near where the bone's buried, the dog just barks and barks and barks, you know? So nervous that somebody's going to take his bone. But you know who that owner was? That owner was the local butcher. <laughs> and he's got all the bones that dog will ever need. And sometimes we're sitting there kind of trying to protect every little inch we have. When our God is the one that can provide, he already knows before we ask, he can take care of our needs. And we're like that little dog obsessing about something when our God can take care of us. I'm going to move quickly here. Number four, worrying. Does, I'm going to put a word in here. Absolutely nothing to improve the situation. Out of all of these, this is usually the one I need to hear. I'm glad Jesus gets practical in verse 25. Which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If you then are able to do the small things, why are you anxious about the rest? Listen to verse 25. Which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? The old translations say, which of you can add a cubit to his height? That's because the word here can translate either way. The word either translates cubit to your height, which is like 18 inches, or it translates this idea in our version, add some kind of minute or hour, or some measurement to your life. So the old translations believe it means adding to your height. The newer translations tell us that it's talking about adding to your span of life. I agree with the newer translations because I think the Old Testament has a lot of these illustrations. Either way, the point is the same. And the point is this. Worrying about things doesn't add an hour to your life, not a minute. It doesn't add any inches to your height. Worrying does nothing at all to help the situation. Worry accomplishes nothing. Uh, I'm one of these, uh, I'm not a bowler. 
you know, I'm a bad bowler. If I bowl 100, that's pretty good, you know. Um, but I'm one of these people that when I go bowling, I control the ball while it goes down the alley. Are you like this? Once it's out of your hand, you feel like you have magic. <laughs> you know, it's going to get there, you know, it's rolling. And it's so silly. I mean, I let it out of my hand. Like anything I do is going to roll that into the nine pin or whatever it is I'm trying to hit. But sometimes we feel like that. I remember watching a, a, a batter in Major League Baseball hit a pop-up, and it was one of those that was really close. You know, is it going to be caught by the first baseman, or will it go foul far enough into the stands where he'll get another chance to hit? And he's, you know, he's doing one of these, you know, from the plate. Like, it doesn't matter how anxious you are. It's going to go fair. It's going to go foul. He's going to catch it. He's going to not. There's nothing you can do about it once it's out of your hand. I'm going to give you the Bonadies paraphrase of this verse. My anxiety may very well subtract from my life, but it will not in any way add a single second to it. My anxiety may detract from my joy, but it's not going to do anything to add to it. I've got to preach this to my heart, and I know you do too. Jesus is saying something. Nobody has ever improved their situation through anxiety. You're not going to be faster. We're not going to be think clearer. We're not going to... The bank account doesn't grow through worrying about it, whatever it is. Number five, worry is out of step with who we are in Christ. Verse 29, do not seek, do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, or be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things, but your father knows you need them. The word nations there is it's the word Gentiles, unbelievers. That's the idea. And there's, um, there's a hint towards generosity. Remember when he says, he's going to say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The Gentiles seek to meet their own needs first. And he's saying, my people should be so generous that they're seeking to meet others. That's why later in the passage it says this, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Now think about that. Jesus is looking at a group that doesn't have any extra money to give to the needy. He's not looking saying, all right, look, you've already fed yourself. You've already taken care of yourself. Now give to, he's saying, sell something and give to the needy. That's how poor these people are. But he says, living in that God-centered kingdom way means I can trust God to that extent. It's not just giving out of what what I have extra, selling something, wow, in order to give. In other words, one of the things we want to do, not just to push back at worry, but also just to, to encourage us here, is God is telling us, find someone worse off than you and minister to them that way. Sell what you have and give to somebody that's in a worse situation. You know who comes to mind for me when I read this passage? Ruth in the Old Testament. What a beautiful story. It's a woman that's lost everything. She lost her husband, her children, her security. She has nowhere to lay her head. She has no job, no family to take care of her, no welfare system, nothing. She is a candidate in the Old Testament for people to take care of her. She is someone that, you know, if she was in Israel, could rightly look around and say, you guys kind of owe me a little bit here. You know what she does? She finds somebody more destitute than her, Naomi, and she pours herself into her mother-in-law. There is a hurting person finding someone even more hurting (laughs) in order to minister to them. Such a powerful thing. God is telling us here, that's how my people operate. They operate with that kind of trust in me. All right, last, last one here. 
Last thought, as we seek God's kingdom, he will take care of us. As we seek his kingdom, he'll take care of us. Very simple. Verse 31, seek his kingdom and these things will be added unto you. And you know, the old, the old passage in Matthew says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. We're talking about people with misplaced priorities and God is telling us to place our priority in the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. When I hear this passage, I think about when a kid, a little kid graduates from mittens to a glove. You, remember, you know this? When your kids are little or a little kid, they wear mittens. But then when they're like three or four, they want to wear big people stuff. And then you get old and you go back to mittens. But that's another sermon. Um, they want to wear a glove. And when a, kid, when a kid goes to stick his hand in a glove for the first time, what do they do? All the fingers go into one, right? And you flap it around. And so the mom or dad or grandparent says something like, look, just get that pointer finger in there first, you know? And as soon as you get the pointer finger, all the others, you know, if you focus on that one, all these others just have a way of following into their own fingers. Jesus is saying, don't worry about everything. Just seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and I'll take care of all the rest. I learned a new phrase a couple of weeks ago. It's an old military phrase. I got your six. I like that. Like, I didn't know what that was. Apparently, it's, it's from World War I, and the military still uses it today. Back in World War I, the fighter pilots, of course, when you're focused on something, that's your 12. Think of a clock, right? That's your 12. And when someone comes up to you and they say, I got your six, they're saying, I got your what? I got your back. Nice picture, isn't it? You focus on the 12. That's your mission. I'm going to cover the six. That's what Jesus is saying to us this morning. You focus on the 12. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I got the six. And all these things would be added unto you. It's all about priorities. While we are on this mission of trying to live God-centered lives, Jesus promises that he will provide along the way. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for strengthening and encouraging us. Some of us today just need to know we're not alone. Some of us need to know that you got our six. You're watching out when we can't watch out. You're sovereign. You're all loving. You're gracious. And we just need to be on that mission for you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I pray that you would help us through the power of the Spirit, to weaken the grip of worry on our hearts. I don't anticipate that we will never struggle with worry. We may go through seasons where it's substantial, but we're going to take you at your word that you can help us weaken this grip and you can give us that measure of victory even in this world now through the power of the Spirit. So we call upon you to do this work. and All glory belongs to you in Christ's name. Amen.